Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 31. This chapter brings us to the end of a section within the book that began at Exodus 20, verse 1. Douglas Stewart puts it this way, Since oral reception of the Ten Commandments began the whole process of legal revelation on Sinai in the first place, 20 verse 1, it becomes obvious that 20 verse 1 through chapter 31 verse 18, concluding with the description of written reception of the Ten Commandments, forms a coherent unit and that that unit is nearing its end with the present commands, closed quote. I think it'd be difficult to argue with that analysis. Chapters 32 to 34 are narrative in form and will tell the story of Israel's rebellion and the remarkably gracious covenant renewal that immediately followed. And then chapters 35 to 40 will tell the story of how the tabernacle was actually built and finally erected and visibly and gloriously indwelt by the presence of the Lord. So, We are standing upon a hinge, as it were, in the book of Exodus. Instructions have been given, and now a team will be assembled and some parameters established, and thus shall conclude Moses' fifth journey up the holy mountain to meet with God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name... Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamech, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his son for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Old Testament and New, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up the house of the Lord. The Apostle Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, 4-5, when he says, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Closed quote. The Corinthians, of course, were fascinated with the gift of tongues, 
And Paul is not seeking here to delegitimize tongues, but to deprioritize tongues. The purpose of spiritual gifts, he says, is to build up the church. He goes on to say in verse 12 in the same chapter, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Close quote. So spiritual gifts, Old Testament and New, are given to build up the church, and they must be exercised in strict obedience to the law. Look at verse 11b. These gifted people, gloriously equipped by the Holy Spirit, must do all according to all that I have commanded you. So gifts are subject to law. The law and the commandments are like the banks that the river of spiritual gift and power must flow within. When the river overflows the banks, the whole world turns to mud and mire. And we've seen far too much of that in the church in recent generations. Now, of course, I don't think that we would want to attempt to develop an entire theology of spiritual gifts from this passage in Exodus, but I also don't think we should ignore this passage in Exodus when we are thinking comprehensively about spiritual gifts. This passage establishes the principle that God gives by his Spirit what is needed and what is appropriate at every stage of the redemptive process so that his people can serve him and represent him in keeping with their calling. And this is why I've never been entirely comfortable with words like cessationism. A gift may certainly cease. God may give a certain gift for a certain season for a particular reason. And then the reason may be fully met, and thus the gift may no longer be required. But should a similar need arise again in the future, God would by no means be restrained from giving it again. God is sovereign over the gifts. He knows what he is doing, and he gives what is required so that we as his people can give him glory. Thanks be to God. I prefer to leave it at that. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed." The key to understanding why this paragraph is inserted here is likely that phrase in the middle of verse 13, above all, or as the JPS Torah translation has it, nevertheless, you must keep my Sabbaths. What God is saying here is that the urgency of building this tabernacle and the importance that has been placed 
on corporate worship does not mean that the Sabbath law can be disregarded. Even this most important of work must stop on the seventh day so that God's people can rest and worship as they were created and saved to do. Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarna puts it this way, The tabernacle enshrines the concept of the holiness of space. The Sabbath embodies the concept of the holiness of time. The latter takes precedence over the former, and the work of the tabernacle must yield each week to the Sabbath rest. Close quote. We must never trample on one principle in order to pursue another. Wisdom and obedience must go hand in hand. Or as it has often been said, we must be committed to doing God's work God's way. There is no pragmatism in the Bible. There is no doing something shady in order to get a result. No. Above all, God says, keep my Sabbaths. Despite the urgency of the task, obey me. Trust me. Come away from your labors and rest. Verse 17 says that this Sabbath rest, even in the midst of urgent labors, is to be a sign forever between God and the people of Israel. And it must have been. It was one of those things that marked off the Jews as distinctive from their neighbors. It was a demonstration of faith. It was a sign and a clear indicator to all of their surrounding peoples and neighbors that these people were about more than simply work and profit. These people were living essentially God-centered lives. That was the idea. And of course, as Christians, we're very interested in precisely how this principle ought to be transposed into a New Testament key. God willing, I plan to do an excursus episode on the principle of Sabbath at the conclusion of this series. But for now, J. Alec Machir gets us moving and thinking in the right direction. He says, while we must take note of the fact that the New Testament never quotes the fourth commandment, and Colossians 2.16 rules out any legalistic approach to the question of Sabbath observance. Nevertheless, we must be careful to take account of the rather wonderful and deeply theological understanding of the Lord's day given here in Exodus. The Sabbath is to be a sign to the world of our holy separation as the Lord's holy people. And that separation itself is is a sign of our determination to fashion our lifestyle in imitation of the Lord, closed quote. I think that is exactly right. Now, as I said, we'll get into this in greater detail when we do the excursus episode, but I think this is one of the ways that we as Christian people have to re-identify ourselves as distinct from our cultural context. We, above all people, should understand that life is about more than work. Life is about more than, than busyness, these activities. To be God's people fundamentally is to stop and to trust and to prioritize worship, service, and fellowship. It, it's a way of saying to people that we're, we're trusting in different things, we are committed to different things, and we're following a different course because we are under the lordship of God through Jesus Christ. I think however you want to conceive of it, and there are differences in the details, I think still this 
pause as characteristic of God's people needs to be, once again, part of our witness to a busy and distracted world. More on that later. Verse 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So as we mentioned off the top, Moses received the Ten Commandments orally in chapter 20, verse 1. But here at the conclusion of this section and at the conclusion of Moses' fifth trip up the mountain, he is presented with a written copy, written with the very finger of God. The point seems to be that while the entirety of this revelation is to be understood as binding and authoritative, there is something foundational and essential about these Ten Commandments. They are the holy kernel, you might say, the nuclear center of the whole. That there were two tablets does not mean that five were written on one and five were written on the other. Rather, according to the custom of the day, the whole Ten Commandments were written on both tablets. There were two copies, one for each party in the agreement. These tablets will be placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, which itself will reside at the very heart and center of Israelite worship. The law, the spirit, and the worship. These are the things that will mark these liberated slaves as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those, of course, over at the website, www.intotheword.ca. I hope you found our new app and are making good use of it. We're so excited about that. And we would love for you to make use of that. Download that. You can connect with us on Facebook. I hope that you do that too. You can connect there. We post daily encouragements and conversation starters, user reflections. Great way to get connected. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. <laughs>